2: What's up, everybody? Welcome to a special episode of Dime Dropper. I don't know what to call these episodes yet, but an episode where we delve into a time in history, whether it's a team or an era. And it's going to be along my historic timeline. For this episode, we are going to be talking about what I think is the greatest rivalry that you never hear about between the Baltimore Bullets and the New York Knicks in the late 60s and early 70s. But we're only going to be talking about the first half of it, when Earl the Pearl Monroe was still a member of the Baltimore Bullets. Joining me today, I'm really excited. Obviously, Fabian, who you guys are familiar with, who joined me on one of these kind of episodes when we talked about the mellow era of of the New York Knicks. But thankfully, and I'm really excited to be joined by, hopefully, one of the first of multiple appearances by two of the most knowledgeable people that I've ever come across talking basketball and hoops. Dr. Hawk, who we're joined by, uh, you'll hear him, uh vocally but you don't see his uh face today but and also my uh, jason as well uh who is right currently writing a book on the aba and we'll give you his background on the hoops but i'm super excited to be joined by these guys they have so much knowledge of the game everybody thanks for joining me today i'm really excited about this
1: hey thanks for having us of course
2: So I guess we can start with Doc and Jason. Just introduce, this is your first time on Dime Dropper. I know you guys are always in the spaces, but the first time on the YouTube channel and the podcast. So let people know, like, what's your back? How did you guys get all this knowledge? Because you guys have an answer to everything uh, about this era.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead,
3: Jason.
2: Oh, yeah. All right. Um, Well, I was
0: lucky enough to grow up in New York in the 60s. So, um, you know, I, I came of age right when the Knicks got good. And we're going to talk about that era. That's my era. So I just think I was really fortunate that I was exposed to, you know, what was just a, a really beautiful brand of basketball and the city just went crazy right when I was old enough to get it. You know, where I was a sports fanatic as a kid. And then all of a sudden the city just popped off the Mets, the Knicks, the Jets. It was crazy. And I was like right in the middle of it, just thinking, this is awesome. And and the Knicks were, uh, yeah, I don't know. They kind of owned the city for a while there. And uh, so I just fell in love with basketball and played all the time and watched as many games as I could, Listen to Marv Albert. I think I was lucky there, too. You know, I got one of the great voices. So I think all of that was the start of it. And then I just followed it and watched it and, and started writing about it uh, a couple of years out of college. And then made my way up through different places, uh, wrote for a lot of different magazines, Um, ended up at Basketball Digest for a number of years, being their West Coast guy. So all the way up through about 2004, doing a lot of writing about the league, talking to guys. And then since then, just kept up, kept up connections, and kept up watching. I love the game. So uh, then talked to a lot of ABA guys in the last five years uh, for a project I'm doing on the ABA, and that was really educational for me. Um, I was aware of the ABA, saw some games on TV, but um, it was kind of a mystery. So I wanted to learn about it, and I did, and I am. And those guys love to talk, and they have some unbelievable stories. So, you know, I've talked to a lot of players, watched millions of games, um, and, uh, and still do, still enjoy it.
2: There we go, right on. Uh, so what I love also about this dynamic is we have Jason from the New York side, as, grew up as a Knicks fan. We have Fabian who was a Knicks fan a little bit later, and then we have Dr. Hawk, who's from the Baltimore and Maryland area. So he was a Bullets fan growing up. So this is awesome.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>
2: Give us your background, Doc. How'd you get into the yeah. game?
3: Well, I, I, I'll tell you, um, I started playing when I was about six or seven years old. Always read about the game. Dad always had a lot of books around the house, uh, Sports Illustrated, things like that, and then textbooks as well. And when I was a kid, I was always wanted to read books that had pictures in them. If it didn't have a picture in it, I didn't want to read it. But uh, one day, uh, my pops, uh, after you know he knew I'd been watching the NBA and started getting into it and playing the game, um, he knew I could keep my te- he could keep my attention span or I would keep my attention span, and he handed me this one book called "Foul" by Connie Hawkins. It had probably about had about 400 pages, and yep. I was maybe in the third or fourth grade. And he said, why don't you read this book? And, and I said it in my childhood vernacular. I said, well, Pop, that don't even have no pictures in it, man. And he looked, he said, read it. He said, you will enjoy it. So I flipped forward to the part where Connie was in the ABA. Because the ABA, as, as Jason stated, I was intrigued by it because it was mystery. You know, you always heard about the NBA and the NBA stars, but there was this mystery going on about who are these ABA guys? Who are these vagabonds? And who are these these guys that I've never heard of, or at least I can't see on television? So I got into that. In But growing up in Baltimore, um, when I was there in the early 70s growing up and really was starting to get into sports, the Colts were there. They had won a Super Bowl in 70-71. Um, Baltimore was uh, coming, was up and coming and loaded, as we'll get into and then you had the Orioles who had won the World Series, you know, I think uh, once at that point, but were always contenders. And so you would see these guys everywhere, you know, particularly in Baltimore County. And they always, always accessible, always friendly. And um, as I started to just move along and, and get a little older, I was always um, reading books uh, about sports. And then that turned into writing. The funny thing about it was, I remember a couple of my cousins, they used to tease me. They said, well, you read a lot. They said, well, all you read is those damn basketball books or whatever. But reading those books and reading them on another level at such a younger age put me on a higher reading plane, taught me how to write, taught me how to tell stories, and it it parlayed into what I do today. Even though I am a physician today, um, if I had not gone to medical school, I would have been a journalist. And I, like I tell people, I would have been Brian Gumble with a little bit of swag, so I wouldn't take his <laughs> job. But um, as it turned out, as it turns out, one of my mentors told me, he said, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. And so in spite of the fact that I function as a physician and a, me- a medical consultant, I also write probably two articles per month. I don't write short articles. I'm not a journalist. Um, I write pieces and opinion pieces that, you know, it, it takes a little bit of work to put in. Um, but I get it done. So I write for the hub.news. Uh, um, I'm doing something in conjunction um, with uh, Vanderbilt, uh, their sports initiative about sports and society. And then I've been writing for uh, narrative.com, African American Studies in their sports division, for about close to a year. I've probably written about 26 articles in there. So I enjoy it. Um, writing requires that you read getting in spaces like this also requires that you read and stay current. So that's, that's, that's about all I can tell you about me as, as it applies to this.
2: So that's beautiful. I want to tell my subscribers guys, uh, Dr. Hawk wrote an amazing uh, piece mm-hmm. on the great Spencer Haywood. You guys should all check it out, especially if you're watching winning time or you follow me because I've made Instagram posts and various posts on Spencer Haywood. And that's just the beginning. Um, Cause when he gets to the NBA, hopefully we'll get a lot more footage of him that I can, Talk about and share. So, let's get right into it. Um, I, first, before I want to get to the specifics of this specific rivalry, and by the way, for anybody watching, yes, everybody knows I'm a Clipper fan, so I'm okay with the double dipping here. I got my my Washington so, Bullets hat that I got from the Verizon Center in DC, and I got the Knicks shirt that I got from MSG. So, two of the stadiums I've been to, so I've seen these both both these franchises in their locations. So, it's awesome for me. But um, I didn't know all this history when I went to these places, so. I want to talk about the state of the league in the sixties though. You know, a lot of people have these narratives uh, about the sixties and the players weren't athletic. It was all white dudes. Um, There was not much skill outside of like the big guys, Oscar Robertson, Wilt Chamberlain, Jerry West, Bill Russell, and, you know, studying the whole decade and now I'm done studying the whole decade. I'm on to the early seventies. Now I just found out how many false, you know, there's so the amount of false perceptions and narratives out there about the sixties, the amount of talent there really was, but, uh, I guess I'll start with Jason. The state of the league in the '60s, and I want to give Fabian a chance. If you want anything to add on or ask or maybe what what was how were the '60s talked about when you were a kid in, the, in growing up in the '90s? Because when I hear about the '60s, there were plumbers, there were part-time workers, these guys <laughs> weren't that good. All this stuff, no context about anything. So your mic is mu- your mic is muted.
1: You hear me? Yeah. I'm sorry. It was the same exact. Way you were saying it, but now calling it plumbers and 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 uh, and mailmen or whatever, they that was Twitter who put the twist on it. But we did disrespect the old school, and there is always that that factor that you know when you're young, you think you're the new best hot toy in, in the world, and you think the world's gonna end in your every genera- new generation thinks the world's gonna end in their generation. Sorry. So everything in the past evolution took place. There's no way it, you know it was ever better than this especially in the 60s when if you look back on it because of the dominance of when you look at um, uh, bill russell and you see he won 11 championships and then you say well it was probably like 10 teams back then and it couldn't have been that that many that much competition but you know i i can't lie as as when i met dime dropper and we got closer then jason and dr hawk gets involved it's like it it, it makes it way harder to ever speak from that point of view, but there's still remnants of it for me because you still have the ABA, you still have the Harlem Globetrotters. So there are, it's somewhere in the middle and more towards what you guys put me onto because there's an education involved about reality. Look, wherever they make it, didn't make it for whatever reason, but there was still greatness involved. You still have to be great. You still have to show up and be a professional. And we can have tons of uh, several uh examples of how to not be a professional that is hot in the media right now in the <laughs> nba so I, I would imagine that someone like a will chamberlain back then was kind of like in the middle where he was enjoying being a star and we still see that today but at the same time he's still will chamberlain and he was he's he's a legend for that reason so we were we my generation did the same thing Don. we were very disrespectful and we were, and, and almost demeaned the accomplishments of a will chamberlain or bill russell
2: well, and you know, I think with those two particular guys, before I hand it off to Jason, those two particular guys is are very easy to try to poke holes through in terms of their resumes if you don't really know the circumstances. Because when you hear 11 championships, you you automatically want to poke holes through that. Like, you're like, okay, how is that possible? And then when you see Wilt Chamberlain's stats, you're like, okay, there's got to be something like here. Like, So everybody wants to, you know, poke holes through these guys' resumes. Um, and I think a large reason is because we don't talk about the competition they face. So I'm going to hand it off to Jason. Give us what the league was really like in the 60s. Uh, how how good was the competition relative to what is told now? And, you know, what about the the unfairness to black players and how that evolved? So I'm going to hand it off to you. That's a lot of questions.
0: Yeah, um, I know my bad. I should have <laughs> gone out of time there. <laughs> we got we got like an hour for those questions? Yeah. Uh, well,
3: got to write a I dissertation. Think,
0: yeah. yeah. I think one thing that I've kind of looked back on, you know, I didn't really think about it at the time, but now when you think about it there were 8 teams for most of the 60s no they, i think it was
2: the ninth team was introduced was the chicago packers i believe in 61 62
0: okay so nine and then yeah. 10 so yeah. basically for the decade you're talking about nine or 10 teams mm-hmm. and in those days the benches almost never played yeah so i Very think that's important
2: rotations it's
0: important to know as well we'll talk about that with this series cuz man the guys put up big minutes but they they all did all the stars did it was that was the game and uh so you're really looking at let's say you got 10 teams and you got maybe seven guys on each team that play that's 70 guys that's it and so you're playing against other than the guys who did make it into the league for various reasons you're playing against the best guys every night there is no night off um and i think that's i mean if you think about it now if you want to just look at it now there's what 28 teams 30 teams
2: Thirty teams. It, yeah.
0: Okay. Thirty. If you were to knock that down to ten, right? How good are those ten teams? Insane. They're they're insane. They're all all star teams. Now that was not the case back then. There's more players now, but it's important to kind of think about that because these teams were loaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and partly for that reason, there's only that many jobs. That was That's it. That's what Bill Russell said
2: to Michael Jordan. You know, he was when he was, he was saying that. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah it's true. I mean, you can't get around that. And it wasn't like there was until the ABA came, there wasn't like, you know, there were a lot of guys out there that could really play there were a lot of African American players who were denied their chance. We don't know how many, you know, I think maybe out of those 70, probably another 20 would have been African American players who were better than the bottom 20, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: at least. So if you look at that, the league would have been even better. It was really good. And the level was really high. It would have been even higher.
2: And especially so, those guys you talk about when you talk about guys even past those seven players that are playing. A lot of those guys at the end of the bench were just white guys that were well, fillers, right?
0: And that's important to know that the quota was very real. And Doc can talk about this too. But it was, you know, four four black guys on the team was it? Uh, really, only Red Auerbach broke that because he wanted to win. He didn't care. Uh, he, he wanted to win. He was smart. And he said, "If I roll out this this squad, they can't beat me, and they couldn't." And I think that's important to look at too. Um, but <laughs> it's true. It was kind of funny when you look at it. But I mean, he had you know five of his top seven rotation guys were almost always black guys. They were much more athletic than the rest of the league, and they ran the league to death. That's not an accident. Yeah, um, no, it's just that's just not. Uh, it's just smart, and nobody else caught on. Nobody was willing because. You know, it was questionable in those days. There was a lot of uh, fan issues, and and owners were really scared of putting too many Black guys out there. And they didn't. And they got beat because of it over and over again. Um, anyway, so that's a big part of it. Um, and there were no nights off. I mean, I just, you know, there were very few really bad franchises that stayed bad. Um, so, you know, you had to bring it every night. I think it's important to know how tough the travel was then. Mm-hmm. The travel was impossible. Um, they took trains. They took like propeller planes. Uh, it was nasty. They played five games in seven nights in canvas shoes with no trainer. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm not making this up. I mean, no, they, they, I'm this, with you. not making this up. Think about that. I mean, these guys today they can't play three games in a week without taking a game off, and they only play 35 minutes a game. Yep. Will Chamberlain averaged over 48 minutes a game one year.
3: Absolutely. Over.
0: I, I, I mean, so, you know, it was a tougher job in those days, a much, much tougher job. And uh, also, these guys, if you were hurt, uh, you were supposed to play, period. Um, and if you were a star, you absolutely had to play unless you couldn't walk. And that's also important to know. And a lot of guys got hurt because, of course, you do. Came back too soon because you had to, and then were hurt the rest of their career. And that's why the careers were shorter because the medical care was terrible. Um, and guys were coming back too soon and playing hurt and continuing to play hurt. And that's just what you did. That's that was a given. That was not. If you didn't, you were out of the league. You were you were called, well, oh, that guy's weak. He's gone, and nobody wanted. Uh-huh. Him. And you were and you were literally gone. It. it that's it. If you refuse to play or you told the medical staff, no, I need another two weeks. And they had somebody, whoever it was, some hack doctor that said, no, he can play. And you didn't, you were gone. they cut you. And your career was over, nobody picked you up. So think about that. I mean, that's a big, big thing. And so I think it was a man's game in those days. You had to be tough as hell, very physical. Um, And so, yeah, the state of the league was interesting. Um, uh, It was small, the league office had like four people. It was kind of a minor league. Baseball was the sport. Football was coming up. Basketball was kind of in the backwater. They didn't draw a lot of fans. Um, so it was a different, you know, it was a different sport, different time. But you know, you, you had to be there and you had to bring it and you had to play strong and tough every night, or you were out.
2: Doc, you got anything to add on? And and we can also talk about how approaching the era that we're about to talk about. How one thing I really noticed though is when you look at like 1955. And then you look at 1965, 1966, when we're just talking about like the amount of black players, it looks like a totally different league. Like even by 1966 and the late Absolutely. 60s, you had a lot of like, the, I think the other teams were like, okay, we got to start uh, matching the Celtics well, with this a little bit or something.
0: Yeah. If you get beat, if you get beat every year, you know, at a certain point you gotta turn it out. Well, when when was Earl Lloyd? When was his first game? He's the first black player. When that was in fifty
3: like fifty five, something 55, like that. Fifty five, I think. Uh, Chuck yeah. Cooper,
0: those guys. So I mean, you didn't even have black players in the league until the mid-50s. Yeah, exactly. Let's be clear here. So a very obviously a completely different league in the forties or
2: fifties George Mike and all. It was all white guys. So yeah. that to me, that doesn't even count. Yeah, that no. that's <laughs> that's why people get it twisted. They act like Mike and, and Russell played like in the same time, and it's totally different. Totally different. Absolutely. They lump
3: even. them all, they lump them all together, man. Well, so go for well, it, Doc. Yeah, or well, was I, has anything. I'll I'll tell you this, and, and I think we talked about this. I remember I was walking the dogs. My, uh, my wife had one dog, I had the other, and the phone kept going in, in and out, and it was in the winter time. And I said something about that Paul Silas quote. And and I'll and I'll say it again regarding the state of the league. And this is around the time when the bullets and the uh, Knicks started to come up. Um, and it's about the preference of keeping um, the white fans happy and keeping them in the seats. I remember what Paul Silas said, and I'm and I'm quoting. He said, uh, "Baltimore keeps a lot of black dudes. San Francisco don't." He said, "Atlanta has all black Atlanta has all black starters, so they try to get white dudes for the bench." <laughs> and I never—I re- can remember where I was sitting when I read that for the first time. And I immediately went and picked up two annual basketball magazines. And I picked up a book that had the rosters. And lo and behold, it coincided with what he said. San Francisco, every year in the 60s, you looked at the roster and you had Thurman and a guy. You had Al Annals. You had Nate Thurman. And you had uh, Joe Ellis. And the other brothers came and went. Matter of fact, my wife's cousin played for them briefly. His name was Bill Turner. Number's retired at Akron. Um, but that's how, that was their core. And then you looked at Baltimore. Baltimore had brothers up and down the roster by that time. And Unsel, they had Gus, they had uh, uh, Ray Scott, they had Earl Monroe. I mean, they had gone through. They had gone through already. Gone through Bellamy and Jim Barnes and that crew and and Eddie Miles. But there were other cities, and he was making reference to Phoenix where he was at the time, where, okay, we got to keep fans in the seats, so we got to do what we can to have some white stars. That was real. Um, going back to what Jason was saying about the talent level in the league, I want to tell you something that Will Chamberlain said from way back in the day. When you had eight or ten teams, that, that shouldn't be seen as a, a – a, For lack of a better term, a black mark on the league in terms of how talented our record was, um, it was harder, you know, because you had you didn't have a weak link. You were going to go to oh, we're going to play Cincinnati tonight. Oh, we're going to play the St. Louis tonight. Uh, uh, We're going to go to this guy. We're going to funnel the ball to that guy. You didn't have any weak links. Everybody could play, you know. And 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 to give you a perfect example of that, um when Chicago came in as an expansion team, expansion teams always dilute the talent momentarily, but then they catch up. But yep. Chicago came in as an expansion team in 66. And because of the talent level in the league, everybody has to leave a certain number of players unprotected. Guess what? That team made the playoffs its first year. As yeah, an expansion and, and that team. also
2: came after they extended it to four teams in each division make the playoffs that yes, year. Yes, yes.
3: Right. So, you know, the, the, the talent level was there. You know, Wilt was going against – I always see in Twitter, he didn't go against any other seven-footers. Somebody wrote, uh, I think a couple weeks ago, he never went against a guy over 6'8". I'm like, come on, man. You you don't know what you're talking about. Just take a peek at a roster and read something, and you'll you'll understand that that's a weak statement. The forwards were strong on on every team. The guards were strong. You know, it it was just – I could name names all day, but my point is, is that when you don't have that expansion and that dilution of talent, then it's tough. You don't get any nights off. You got to come to play, and it's and in terms of toughness and the injuries, Jason's correct. You know, it, it, it was no load management. You, you don't want to play? Well, guess what? Before the ABA, we ship your ass to the Eastern League. You know, see <laughs> yeah. how you like that? You yeah. know, because you ain't going on a plane anywhere in the Eastern League. You know, it, 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 so. Yes, it, 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 the, you had the racial issues. Um, some teams, it, it, it went beyond that because, like you say, you, you they wanted to win. But the talent level, no. For their era, for what they had, no, it was there.
2: Exactly. Was there. So I feel as though the 60s is like the first real decade where, you know, we see stars that kind of resemble like, you know, the stars that we talk about now. I mean, there's. To me, when you get to Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell, we've never seen anybody like these guys. But one thing no. I'm really excited about is we're gonna, I'm going to start introducing the characters for this rivalry, is that we're going to be talking about two teams in which there's no Oscar, no Jerry, no Wilt, and no Bill Russell. So this is great education for people. So I'm going right. to start out with the first one that gets drafted, the first main character, Gus Johnson in the 63-64 season. I'm sorry.
0: Hold on. Hold on. What about Dick Barnett?
2: Oh, okay. We can go to Dick Barnett. Yeah, Dick, <laughs> Dick Barnett okay. was – this time he was on the Lakers, right? Oh, no, Nationals Dick, first. He went Dick, to the Nationals. Yeah, yeah. But Dick,
0: Dick Barnett goes back farther than that. He was a yeah, two, or three, two- or three-time National champion, black college champion at Tennessee, Tennessee State. State. Phenomenal college player. Probably one of the top five players in the country at the time. And then he went to the ABL which was the right. league in 60, 60, 61, something like that. And proving again, how good he was, his team won the title coached by Bill Sharman.
2: Wow, how many so titles that guy have?
0: And yeah, that dude won, you know, he, he probably beat you playing checkers. I mean, that dude won everything, everywhere. Um, yes, but anyway, Dick, Dick Barnett, uh, one of the most unique players you'll ever see his jump shot. There's never been another one like it in 70 years. He tucked yep. his legs up under his butt. Time Machine
2: episode three for the dime dropper fans. It's there. Episode Watch three. It because you can't, <laughs> until, until you see it, you cannot
0: believe that number one, a guy ever shot like that, and number two, a guy was an all star, borderline Hall of Famer shooting like that and shot lights out.
1: So it, um, it was it was like a like what we saw Clyde Drexler do something like that. Yeah. No. Uh, uh, even mm. more,
2: even more like it's it's weird. Even He's more like, pronounced. Kicks, it's like he kicks his legs. It's, it's very interesting. He tucks, he tucks both of his legs up under his ass
0: in the field yeah. and falls back. You can call him fall back. Fall, fall back, back baby. Did yeah.
2: Chick coin that? I think he, I
3: think Dick was. I,
0: I, think, I think that was Dick who said it. It might have been Chick Hearn. But anyway, Dick Barnett then went to the Lakers, and that's where he really made his name, playing alongside Jerry West. And yeah. Jerry West to this day, and he has told me this personally more than once, uh, that he is still pissed off that they traded Dick Barnett. That was his guy. That was his partner. Um, and he's a, a, a serious ball player. Um, and uh, that really hurt the Lakers when they traded him. It was a bad deal. Uh, I think they got Bob Boozer, who played yeah. like a year for them.
2: Yeah, and, and I, think, I think the reason why they got Bob Boozer looking back is because Elgin Baylor was going through really serious injury problems at the time and was going to miss a lot of that season. And they got booed. I think right. maybe it's like a panic move, I think. I think you're right. And, and so, Barnett,
0: yeah. Dick Barnett, is, is the, he is the lost guy in this whole rivalry. Um, he, he brought it every night. He played defense. He was smart. He was the veteran on the Nick team. He was the only veteran on that team, the only older guy. And uh, he was the starting guard for this entire 69, 70, 71. He was there every game doing his thing, Garden Earl, you know, getting 20 a game. Uh, so Dick Barnett would be the first guy and and a very important and lost guy uh, and shouldn't be.
2: I guess I want to, I mean, I guess I should. So there's, there's one, there's one of them. Yep. And now we go to, I want to go to Gus now because the Barnett trade happened a little bit after Gus and them got drafted. So at this time, Gus, at this time, I guess if we're going chronologically, Dick Barnett in 63, 64 is still on the Lakers. But now the Baltimore Bullets, who are now in Baltimore, the first – so in 61-62, this franchise was the Chicago Packers. They were the ninth (laughs) team. Then they moved and became the Chicago Zephyrs. I'm sorry, they didn't move, but they just rebranded the Chicago Zephyrs for 62-63. And then 63-64, they moved to Baltimore and become the Baltimore Bullets. And in comes Gus Johnson, a 6'7", 225-pound like God-looking guy from Akron, Ohio, which is like, it sounds familiar talking about a jack-of-all-trades from Akron, Ohio. Doc, I'm going to let you take this one. Gus comes into a very bad Baltimore team in the beginning.
3: And just tell us about Gus Johnson. Yeah. Some background on Gus before you even get to Baltimore. Um And Gus was a teammate, and Gus was always a man among boys, like you're saying. Uh, he's actually 6'6, 235. Um, All muscle, Greek God. But Gus was a teammate of Nate Thurman, same high school team in Akron. Um, (laughs) Then he went to play junior college uh, for two years and then he went to Idaho and then he turned pro. Now, back to Ohio. All through high school he had heard about a guy from Middletown who was also a Hall of Famer named Jerry Lucas and they used to go at it. And Jerry Lucas actually, uh, his squad beat uh, Akron, that, that t- the high school team in Akron for the state title. To this day, people will tell you that Jerry Lucas feared Gus Johnson. And when anytime he went against Jerry Lucas, they said he always had a little something extra in the tank, a little extra elbow, a little extra shoulder, or what have you. But let's go back to fast forward to Baltimore. He came in as his phenom, over-the-rim type guy, power type guy, shattering shattering backboards and rims I'll tell a story at another time about when he tried to take one over will Chamberlain uh all-star um betrayed though by his knees and that was part of the issue um that that kind of you know even though he still made the Hall of Fame and what have you still got a championship ring later that was in his in his later years when he was brought in by Slick Leonard in Indiana but um he was a man among boys and in any accolades that he, he gets, it's not exaggerated.
2: Yeah. So Gus yeah. averaged. So at this point, I guess from 63 to 71, we're recovering. He averaged over 16 points and over 11 rebounds every single season. He played great defender, the film he can handle the ball. He has these really flashy passes. Yep. Uh, he's extremely unique. So that's yep. a centerpiece for, for Baltimore. And 64-65. The Bullets were still in the Western Division. And they lost in the <laughs> division finals to Jerry West, who averaged 46 points in the division finals without Elgin Baylor to knock them out, which is amazing. Um, and but now we shifted over to the New York side in 64. In the 64 draft, they draft a special player from Grambling, and that is Willis Reed.
3: Um uh, yes, I want to ask
2: you what did what did you hear about Willis Reed? Well, I guess mostly the the you know coming back uh from injury and all that but i want to go to jason after that though willis reed i mean sharp shooter strong great rebounder just just rook did he win rookie of the year i think so i think he won i think he he did yeah the knicks were very by the way within i want to tell the audience though the knicks were not good when we first got there like at all like this is coming off richie garan jumping johnny green they weren't a playoff team or anything like that so give us the scoop on willis uh jason
0: well, first off, we we'll go ahead and, oops. There's one of the original Willis Reed books. Still have it, 1971. Um, I mean, he was a guy that uh, was a star down at Grambling. So another, like Dick Barnett, all black school. Um, but unlike Barnett, he was a big guy. So people took notice of him, because in those days, you know, you had that big guy. Mm-hmm. The league was all about big guys. He was 6'9", uh, built kind of like Gus Johnson, Absolute stud, Um, but I think the key to Willis Reed was he had the softest jumper, Um, you know, about up to maybe 18, 20 feet, but about 15 to 18 feet, the guy was money, Uh, left-handed, which also helps, I think, Um, but absolute silky jump shot, very athletic, um, unbelievably strong and famous for maybe being the best fighter in the league, uh, he cleaned out the, oh, yeah, when he up the
2: whole laker team. Oh my god. We're yeah. gonna we're gonna put that clip in.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you have to. I mean, this, you know, again, it was a man's league, right? And you came in there, you got tested. You know, that was the thing about the NBA in those days. They tested your manhood. They would elbow you, they would hit you, they would grab your shorts, and they wanted to see how you reacted. Right. And if they could get to you and how tough you really were. Some guys were not that tough. Um and uh and it cost him. He was as tough as they come. So it didn't take but a year for people to figure out, okay. We can't really mess with this guy. And the Knicks needed somebody like that. The problem for Reed was that he was on a team with Walt Bellamy.
1: Yep. Yes. And
0: Bellamy got traded and,
2: in 65-66 early in the season. Right. To the Knicks. Yes.
0: And Reed had played center his rookie year and loved it. And that was his natural position. And he did win rookie long. of the year, by
2: the way. I just checked. He did win rookie of the year. Yeah. Word. And he had a great year.
0: And then they bring in Bellamy, who was a, a great player. But that pushes Reed to forward. And the next two or three years, very frustrating for him and for the Knicks. They did not fit well together, um, but it was a big man's league. And the Knicks looked at it wrong and they thought, well, we got these two great big guys, but it didn't work. And Reed had to play forward. He wasn't quick enough for some guys. Like August Johnson was a little quicker than Reed, could take him a little bit. So it was very frustrating for Willis. He was still extremely effective, all-star level player, but he was out of position. Yeah, And... Um, it was a big issue, and so I mean the key to the to the Knicks, and if we want, you know, you jump ahead, but the Knicks made a trade in '69 uh, where they got rid of Walt Bellamy and Howie Kolmides, who was a starting guard, uh, white guy, and that allowed Reed to go to center. They put DeBusher at power forward, and they put Walt Frazier in the starting lineup. They proceeded to win 15 of the next 16 games. And just rolled through the league that year because then they had the right guys in the right place. And Once Reed went back to center, he
2: began dominating.
3: So absolutely okay. dominant
0: player. So, Inside
2: and out. 66-67 was the only year that Bellamy and Reed actually no, they made the playoffs twice together. No, I mean, they 66, yeah 66-67, they lost to the Celtics in four games, three to one, and then in sixty-eight, lost to the Philadelphia 76ers three games to one. Uh, I want to talk about a guy uh, now from your side, Doc Baltimore side coming in in 66, Jack Marin. Not many people know about him. White guy forward uh, could score. And he really matched up with bill Bradley, who I know was big time at Princeton coming in the the next year, but give us the scoop on Marin and Bradley,
3: man. Let me tell you something you talked about uh, Jason talked earlier about Barnett getting lost in the mix. Jack Marin gets lost in the mix, big time. Yeah. So, so Jack was at Duke. Jack was actually I, – I lived in Pittsburgh as well. I think I might have told you. Jack is a legend up there in Pittsburgh in the WPIL, Western Pennsylvania, at a high school called Farrell um, in Sharon, PA. Um, great player. Legendary there. Um, and game went on to Duke. All-American at Duke. Um, the year that they had the big uh, game that I I, I I written about and I wrote about again, actually – with uh, Kentucky losing to Texas Western, with with all of the brothers and five brother starters, um, Duke almost made it to that final. They had all white squad too. It just didn't wow. have the venom coming from Adolph Rupp. But that's not a here nor there. Marion um, goes into the league, and he's everything that he's supposed to be. Um, particularly um, at the at the small forward, and particularly in playoff time, um, he came up big. He was also a fighter too. Um, if oh, you look really? over the if you look over the data you see that he got into a lot of fights but uh smooth jumper uh left-handed yep. and uh he really he's he's been an all-star um he really came into prominence in the 71 not to jump too far ahead but the the year that that Baltimore finally broke through and beat the Knicks in game 7 he averaged 20 i think 28 and and, and maybe three assists something along those lines, um, but he was he was the go-to guy. Um, Earl's knees were hurting, um, you know, West was for the boards, and Gus was hurting, um, and he just kind of took over. Um, and his next season, I think, may have been his best. And then to tell you how good this guy was, as we talk about guys who get lost in the shuffle, Jack Marin was traded for Elvin Hayes, who was a, an established wow. star from the jump, straight up. It was no... I'm going to give you draft picks and cash and this, that, and the other, and another player. It was straight up, you know. So um, he was a good one, and he was a vital part of those battles.
0: One other thing about Jack Marin is if anybody ever sees him on tape, he had a birthmark. Yeah. (laughs) Um, He he was, as a kid, you know, I was young watching. I'd never seen anybody in, in public. He had a huge birthmark that went all across his chest and all the way down one side of his arm. It was the biggest, yep. this big red birthmark. It was crazy looking. I mean, you looked at this guy, you're like, what? I've never seen anybody look like that. And he's out there playing basketball. And, you know, basketball jersey, you can see the whole thing. He was the strangest looking white guy in the whole league by far. He's and, one and, of the and,
3: strangest, you know. I mean, there's never really been another guy like that. No, no. A shout out to him. One thing i forgot. Jack Marin on on the political side, Jack Marin, sort of like John Roach. He was uh, for the for the ABA. He also became an attorney, but he he became an attorney in sports and sports law. And he's done a ton representing players, particularly from the uh, NBA Retired Players Association. Um, And he's represented guys overseas who are playing ball. So he's giving back to the game. Um, and in my opinion, he's just a legend that's gotten lost. But if you ask me, I, I'm not gonna let you lose him. I'm gonna talk and say good things about him. That is that's hundred percent fact. Yeah.
2: Great segue with the political thing to former senator <laughs> Bill Bradley. Um, <laughs> <laughs> great player at Princeton. And, and make. Um, I want to keep it a little bit shorter with Bradley because I want to get into the series. But any any small thing on on Bill dollar bill.
0: Uh, the most important thing is he was. Uh, the hype around him was insane really insane <laughs> you could, it, it, he was supposed to be the greatest white player anybody's ever seen wow and then he ends up going to england to be a Rhodes scholar and doesn't play for two years because he's so smart he's going to be a Rhodes scholar when he came back to the knicks his nickname was dollar bill because he made such a big contract yeah. because it was such a big deal that this guy was finally going to show up in the nba and what happened to him, unfortunately, is, and again, the Knicks screwed it up. They played him at guard, and he was too slow. In mm-hmm. his first year, he struggled big time, you know, big time, and got his butt kicked and got booed in the garden over and over again and had a really, really tough year because he had to play guard, and he couldn't do it. He struggled. He was, an, he was a little bit like a Havlicek. He ran around the court all the time, never stopped moving, super smart player, beautiful jump shot um just a great shooter also all he did was shoot his whole life um good passer (laughs) good defender for for what he was but uh super smart player and and anyway when Cassie russell got hurt bradley got in in 69 that same year uh and into the starting lineup and then that team took off so he Um, wasn't he was
2: like a sixth man when he when he first came he was was a sixth man because yeah i
0: mean he 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 couldn't play guard and they had Cassie russell who was great uh college player of the year number one pick. And uh, he, he beat Bradley out, and uh, so Bradley was the backup. And then when Cassie went down, Bradley came in, and, and he didn't get back out. Once he was in, he was in. He's a good ball player. He was never, you know, what he was supposed to be, but that was mostly hype. He was just a really, really, really good player.
1: Fabian, what you to got? Bring, to break my silence. And uh, when I was watching the Garden, was Eden. Uh, Walt Frazier says that the only time, other time, he saw a hype like that, like a Bill Bradley hype, was Jeremy Lin. And just like Jeremy Lin, it, it was almost like he didn't reach the hype. So when I heard that, I was like, wow, there's certain things that relate to each other. Going back to the competitive thing with, with Willis Reed, uh, Marv Albert says the only other competitive player he's ever seen as competitive as uh as Willis Reed, what he said, was Michael Jordan. Wow.
2: There
0: you go. I've heard there that before. Well, yeah. Well, Willis was the captain, and, and if you talk to any of the Knicks, and I have, that played with him, they talk about him like uh, kind of like guys talk about Jordan. They just have this look on their face because he played hurt all the time. He got shot up in his leg and his knee all the time. The needles were like two feet long. This was a long time ago.
1: This dude was a yes. gamer,
0: and he was the captain. I mean, he was the guy. He had your back. If anybody messed with you, they were going down. And and Willis just brought it, and he had to play against Wilt and Russell and Embry and Bellamy and Thurman yes. every, every night. And his game matched up because he had that jump shot. So he took guys outside and he was incredibly effective because he could play inside. He was physical, but then he had that jumper. So he was the man. I mean, he was the captain. He was the leader of that team. He was the heart and soul, absolutely, of that Knicks team.
2: So uh, 67-68, the Knicks lose in six games to the 76ers. I may have said four games. They lost in six games. Um, that was the rookie year of the two guys that maybe ended up being <laughs> the most iconic of, of all these players. Oh, yeah. uh, Earl, the Pearl Monroe from Winston Salem and Clyde Frazier from Southern Illinois. I mean, what can we even say about these two? Uh, I guess I want to start with doc um, with, with Pearl. I mean, he's amazing. And he one rookie of the year that first year, if I'm not mistaken in 60, 68. Yeah, so sure, he got the rookie sure. of the year. Um, and then 69, actually, I I, I guess go for um, Monroe and Unsold. What did them, them come to Baltimore do for, not uh, for the team, because it, everything changed in 68, 69, when Wes Unsold gets there.
3: Yeah, it was, uh, Earl came in and and um, you could believe the hype. Earl put up some magnificent numbers. I can't remember if that was the year when he came out of Winston-Salem, if he scored 56 or not, um, but he, he lived up to the, Hype. But when the squad took off, it was when Wes Unseld arrived and, and mm-hmm. was throwing that outlet.
2: 68-69 season.
3: Yeah, 68-69, who also became only the second guy to win Rookie of the Year and MVP um, yeah. that year. Um, they, they, didn't, they didn't follow through in the playoffs. But Wes gave them the unique type of center where he wasn't ball dominant. He was going to get it off the glass. He was going to get it on the follow-ups. But that outlet kind of set it off. That that outlet pass where he could get it, spin, and toss it. And it was you and Kevin Locke. we go get it. And so, you know, Earl brought Earl brought the flash and the flare. Um, the workmanship was, uh, was unselled, and and you know, it just it was magical, and, and it was magical for quite some time. The thing on unselled though, everybody respected him as an all-American. Oh, he's gonna be great, and this, that, and the other. But everybody to a man will tell you he was highly regarded, but no one in their right mind predicted he would be as good and as valuable as he was.
2: Yeah. I mean, and as you said, the rookie of the year and MVP the same year, only other player besides Wilt Chamberlain to do that. In 69, Clyde, uh, as Jason alluded to, I was going to say, as as Jason alluded to, uh, the Dave DeBuscher trade that sent Bellamy and Howie Comives to... Detroit gave Clyde even more room to do his thing. He increased his scoring average by eight points in the 68-69 season, and the Knicks were 35 and 11 after the trade. Um, the Baltimore Bullets surprisingly though got the number one seed. Knicks got the third seed. I guess we'll go to Clyde, and then uh, we'll go get into this matchups. But uh, I know yeah. Clyde's one of your one of your guys, one of your uh, favorites, as he is mine.
0: Yeah, I mean one other, one other thing about Earl though. I mean there's so much to talk about here. I know Doc kept it short. He yeah. was the playground superstar. Yeah. Earl Monroe was his nickname was he had a lot of them. Black Jesus was the big one. Yeah. When he when he showed up, hundreds and hundreds uh-huh. of people would come to the playground. He was the guy. He was the most creative dribbler and one on one player anybody had ever seen. Coming into the league, he was the guy to bring the first guy he brought the spin dribble.
2: Yeah, he was on both over both shoulders. Unbelievable.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was a unique, oh, yeah. flashy, uh, superstar, one-on-one player. He was the guy. And so he's a, a very, very special person in NBA history because he was really unique. Um, and he came in and he put asses in the seats. Mm-hmm. The year he came in, they, nobody went <laughs> yes. to the bulls games. Nobody. And when Earl yes. came, and I've just read something recently about this, they averaged like double.
2: Wow.
0: Because as soon as they saw Earl – and like Doc said, the hype was real. He came from a black college. You know, a lot of people hadn't heard of him. And they picked him really high. It was very controversial. And then he started wheeling and dealing immediately. They were like, oh, we got to go see this guy. We got to go pay oh, yeah. the three bucks or the five bucks because this guy's worth the price of admission. And he was. He was a special, special player. So the Knicks happened to have a guy to to guard him. And that was mm-hmm. Walt Frazier, who was was kind of underrated. Came from Southern Illinois. Kind of a small university. And he made his name by winning the nit in 1967 and people should know that the nit in those days was not quite equal to the ncaa tournament but really close yes sir really close and it was in new york which was absolutely the mecca of basketball and so to win the nit was a big big deal it was in the garden and he was the mvp and that's that was the first time really on the national stage that people went wait a minute who's this guy this guy can play and the Knicks had a lot of guards and Clyde did not think the Knicks would draft him because they were loaded with guards. and they took him anyway. And he did not play that much as a rookie. And again, you know, you asked in the very beginning, what was the league like? Another thing about the league in the sixties was rookies didn't play. Period. Yep. I mean, maybe five rookies a year got time. And then a few others after that, you had to earn it. And, and the, the coaches and GMs did not put the rookies in the game. They, they just didn't play. And so even a guy like him, he played, you know, weird minutes. uh, He didn't start at all. In
2: 68, he didn't start at all? I don't think so. Okay. Uh,
0: No. Um, Maybe. No, I don't think he did. I don't remember him being a starter. Yeah. No, he he struggled. Uh, But anyway, uh, the next year he stepped it up. And then when they made the trade, he just took over. He had the ball. They said, okay, it's your team. You're the man. And he was ready. Uh, Remember, these guys played four years of college. They were men. Very different. That's also important to know. You know, if you're in your second year in the NBA now, you're usually 20. <laughs>
2: right. Well, I'm not kidding. Yeah. I'm no, not he's kidding. He's right. no,
0: it's you're, true, You're 20. Man. In, in, Walt Frazier in his second year was 25 or 24. Mm. So, you know, these are men, um, and they're ready physically, and he was ready. And Walt Frazier, to me, is one of the greatest guards in the history of the game. He was the greatest defender of his era by far. It's not close. Um he was uh, the most clutch player in Nick history. That's not close.
1: Love uh,
0: it. And he took over games. This is another thing that I, I, I enjoyed then and I, I watch for now. He's the guy that used to set guys up. He'd take it easy the first half and mm-hmm. watch guys' tendencies and see what was going on because it was a close game, but whatever. And in the fourth quarter, he'd pick his spots and make a couple, two or three huge steals, lead right to a layup, break your back.
2: No, yeah, all, and the film checks out, too. He does, Every time the Knicks are in, in a 50-50 game, he takes over. It's unreal. It's, like, it's, really crazy.
0: It's yes. unreal. He was, he was such a smart, clutch player, knew how to compose himself. He was always under control. I, I know that every kid growing up in New York, we all wanted to play like him. We all wanted to be as cool as him on and off the court. He was the coolest guy in the league by far. Wasn't even close um with the outfits and what have you. So – he was the guy. And uh, in New York, you know, there was Joe Namath uh, and then there was Clyde. And then yeah. Clyde, Clyde went past Joe Namath, I think, pretty easily. But yeah. uh, and I will say Doc said something. I have to tell the story. But he said, you know, he, you would see guys around Baltimore. It was a different time. You would see guys, you know, they were out in the community. And and uh, when I was a kid, one day in my neighborhood, one of my friends came running and we were out playing ball in the street. I think we were playing basketball. And my friend came over, he said, Clyde's here, Clyde's here, Clyde's here. And we all went, what? And he said, yeah, he's right around the corner. So we just dropped the ball, ran off the playground, ran around the corner, and there's his Rolls-Royce.
2: Wow. some, um,
0: I, I think it was a dry cleaners. You know, they were all little mom and pop stores then. And it was like up upper west side in New York. And we're just standing there. Our jaws are on the floor. And there, Clyde wasn't there. And there's like three or four kids standing by the car. So we go up to these kids. I'm like 10 we're like, what's going on? They say, Clyde's inside, Clyde's inside. We're like, well, what are you doing? Well, we're guarding the car. <laughs> I love it, man. And, I, and so my friend, he goes, can we, can we guard the car with you? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, sure. So we all positioned ourselves around the car, like made like a, a ring around the car. There's like 15, 15 little kids standing around the car, Rolls Royce, which nobody has who's ever seen that, right? Like a burgundy Rolls Royce with the Clyde license plate. And we're all just standing there. And then about five minutes later, he comes out, you know, of the thing. And he's got one of his outfits on. He's got the hat on. Wow. And it's like, we just wanted to drop dead. It's like, are you kidding me? It's real. It's him. And he comes out and he starts laughing because these 15 kids over the And he looks at the one kid who I guess he had talked to. He said, oh, so you hooked it up. You got, you got a crew. <laughs> <laughs> and the kid like, is like, that's right. He goes, I told you I was going to guard your car, man. I had, I had your back, Clyde. And Clyde's like, you know what? I love playing in New York City. And he goes and puts his stuff in the car. And he's like, comes around and he high-five. Well, or not high-five. He didn't do that, Dan. He gives right. the soul handshake to all of us. We start lining up. That's and he awesome. he bends over and he gives everybody the soul handshake and a pat on the back. And he's like, y'all Nick fans, right? We're like, oh, Clyde, you're the man. He's like, okay, just got to support the Knicks. We'll see you guys later. And he goes, by the way, thanks for the car. Appreciate it.
2: Wow. That's amazing. Wow, That's, that's awesome. Got it.
0: I never, ever forgot. I told him that's that when I, when, I, when I met him as a, as a writer. And he got this big smile on his face. He goes, you know, that's not the only time that happened. <laughs>
2: oh, <geez. laughs> that was this a whole way
0: so yeah, well you know he was Clyde, man it was his yeah. city he said he used to do that because he goes look i was out in the city doing stuff and whenever i'd pull up somewhere stuff would happen so i'd always try to grab a kid and say hey can you watch my and they're like oh yeah i'll do it
1: <laughs> that sounds yeah. like just to, if anyone who's younger my age or younger it sounds like you know alan iverson for our generation like if we oh, yeah. see ai ai industry we'll be like oh my god um Joe, just to clarify the um the 56 point game uh Earl the Pearl did score that against the Lakers in February of seven of sixty eight, and he was wow. drafted in sixty seven. So I think he did rookie have year. a pretty good rookie year. Yeah, 20- yeah, yeah. Well, he had, one,
0: he had right. an unbelievable rookie year. He rookie was year. he was the talk of the league because he was the one. He was the Iverson, if you want to say that of the league in that way too. He was the unstoppable new offensive player. Like, what is this guy doing? This guy is an offensive genius. We've not seen these moves. Nobody knew what to do with him. I mean, he mm. was he was that guy.
1: Oh so he had those so that's that's a combination right that maybe I, yeah cuz AI did I always tell these kids now like Dime is the one who really that's why I'm I'm really proud to even be cool with him this cool with him he really enforces and and talks about this the way they dribble now was not allowed oh. to so <laughs> Frazier and, and Earl of the Pearl were, were, were doing this magic. Oh,
2: they definitely well, started pushing it a little bit. Like
1: well, when I saw yeah. them
2: dribble, I'm like, okay, this is a little different than the early 60s for sure.
1: They're Right, of- right. <laughs> right. Then it goes, then it goes to Matthew Johnson. Then it goes and they yeah. eventually Alan Irvinson. And now it's just, I don't even know who <laughs> yeah. you know, Kyrie and Seth are taking <laughs> up another level. 69
2: season. Earl go. of the Pearl Monroe and Gus Johnson, and Wes Unsell, they're all on the All-Star team. Earl's on the All-Star team, but Clyde doesn't make it that year because, as no. you said, he didn't really get his shot till that trade, and right. it really took off for him. The Bullets get the number one seed. So the Celtics for the first time, and the Sixers, obviously Wilk just got traded. So the Sixers and the Celtics, well, the Sixers are a little bit worse, but they're the second seed. The Celtics barely make the playoffs. The Baltimore Bullets get the number one seed. With their MVP rookie, Wes Unseld, and then, of course, their big three, Kevin Loffrey, who we haven't even mentioned, uh, is the fifth guy on this team, starter. 22 points a game this season. And so they play the Knicks in round one.